Welcome to episode 16 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again this week is half of the fantastic cast, Mr. Stephen Lacey. Welcome back, Stephen. Hello, the uh, taller half, the half that doesn't require a hat to protect him from the cold half. Okay, we will take your word for that. It's true. Yeah, it's quite possibly. So, all right. He has joined us this week to discuss the Annihilation event, the one that was published in a series of miniseries, starting with Drax the Destroyer 1 through 4, which led into Annihilation Prologue, which then led into four-issue miniseries for each of Nova, Silver Surfer, Ronan, and Super Skrull, followed by the six-issue Annihilation event itself, and the two Annihilation Heralds of Galactus wrap-up issues. They were written by Keith Geffen, Dan Abnett, Andy Lanning, Javier Grillo Marco, Simon Furman, Christos N. Gage, and Stuart Moore, with pencils by Mitch Breitweiser, Scott Collins, Kev Walker, Renato Arlem, Greg Titus, Jorge Lucas, Andrea DeVito, Giuseppe Camoncoli, and Mike McCone, with inks by Mitch Breitweiser, Ariel Olivetti, Rick Magyar, Renato Arlem, Jorge Lucas, Andrea DeVito, Stefano Landini, Mike McCone and Scott Collins, colors by Brian Reber, June Chung, Chris Sotomayor, Dave McCaig, Laura Villari, and Paul Mounts, letters by Corey Petit and Joe Caramagna, assistant editors Molly Laser, Aubrey Sitterson, and Daniel Ketchum, worked with editor Andy Schmidt under editor-in-chief Joe Casada. cover dates range from November 2005 with the first issue of Drax to May 2007 with the last issue of Heralds of Galactus with release dates ranging from September 28th, 2005 to March 28th, 2007. And as you probably guessed by the episode number, this came in at number 16 in the 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown. Far too low. Far too low. We'll drop in a plug for the show that Stephen wants us to plug here, and then we'll be right back to discuss it in detail. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You Earthlings can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak. Blind or hulk. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him till it has been drained of all elemental 
life, so speak the lecture. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. ffcast.libsyn.com Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all are going to listen to the Fantasticast, where we know who each other are about 90% of the time. And you don't hear the other 10% because of editing. All right, so this, I don't know, it's probably the plot, the significance that we should discuss first. This is what relaunched the whole cosmic section of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, I mean, the plot can either be boiled down to be something very, very simple or something very, very complex. The simple plot is the Annihilation Wave turns up led by Annihilus and a whole bunch of people band together to fight it off. That's just saved you. Ooh, these three trade paperbacks. Yep, that is the executive summary. Yep. And that is, again, the nutshell plot. There's a lot we can go on with the individual characters, but yeah, from Annihilation, we got Nova's fourth ongoing volume. We got Annihilation Conquest, which led into the Guardians of the Galaxy relaunch that greatly influenced the movie, at least in terms of roster. We got War of Kings, Realm of Kings, and the whole thing. Oh yeah, but don't read those, they're terrible. Yeah, the intermittent stuff is hit and miss. It all wrapped up with Thanos Imperative, and that's one of the things I do like. Keith Giffen was a major architect of this, but he moved over to DC during the planning stages for Annihilation Conquest, and Dan Amnett and Andy Landing stood up and took over, and then ran it right through the end, writing all the tie-ins for all the, the missions. It was really their job to write Marvel Cosmic. Yeah, so I mean, uh, when you started talking about what's contained within this, the Drax the Destroyer miniseries was never a part of Annihilation when it was originally published. Annihilation didn't exist as far as the public was concerned. It was just a four-issue miniseries that didn't sell particularly well. <laughs> it, it didn't trouble the top 300 very much because, let's face it, in 2000 and, what was it, 2005, who was buying a Drax the Destroyer series? It, it, the character was a remnant of the Jim Starlin 90s cosmic stuff, things like uh, Adam Warlock and the Infinity Watch. And it sort of, he just sort of loitered around a bit, not really doing very much. Yeah. If you read the introduction to the Drax the Destroyer, or might have been one of the letter columns when you read it digitally on Marvel Digital Unlimited, Eddie Schmidt says that the only reason that exists is because he loves Drax and Keith Geffen loves Drax. And every editor who was higher than him on the food chain was at a convention, so he was in charge for a day and greenlit the thing. Ah, assistant editor's month. So, I I mean, I remember when the Drax Destroyer miniseries came out, and the general attitude in the comic shops was, eh, which, uh, it's better than I was expecting it to be. So I've got the three trade paperbacks that were released in, oh, I guess around 2008? About that, yeah. I picked these up because I'd heard good things about Annihilation. I didn't get this originally, and I, c- I do regret that because it meant that I missed out on mm-hmm. a lot of stuff and only became aware of it when it was too late. I felt it was too late to jump on board. But the Drax the Destroyer series, I really like. I really mm-hmm. enjoy reading it, and I, I never expected mm-hmm. that. And it still surprises me now because it, it shouldn't work at all. You've got a character who has the, a very limited intelligence, he's got a kid sidekick, and then a bunch of really quite pathetic cosmic characters as well. The Blood Brothers, um, who only really have any notoriety because they're there along with Thanos when he's first introduced in Iron Man 55. You've got, uh, which scroll was it? Was it Pybok, the Power Scroll? Yeah, Pybok, the Power Scroll, whose biggest claim to fame is that he shows up as a boss in Marvel Ultimate Alliance video games. Mm. And I definitely haven't spent a large part of my time confusing him with the Super Scroll, even though the Super Scroll is in this very majorly. 
Um, I can't remember who else is in it, but they're they're nobodies. But you get this really good story to the point where Cammy is one of my favourite non-powered characters in the Marvel Universe. Um, I always felt a bit sad that she didn't really appear for ages, and then she was there playing a really good role in Avengers Arena a couple of years back. Similar to you, I picked this up by reputation. I think the only difference is I got the hardcovers. Yeah, so Drax was much better than anticipated. Prologue set the stage. I would say that the Nova series by Abnett and Lanning, and I believe it was the Silver Surfer series, I believe was the one by Keith Geffen. Yeah. Those were good. There was a kind of about a five month delay between Drax ending and the prologue of Annihilation coming out. Where I I don't know kind of what would have kicked that off. I doubt it was sales, but it might have been some good critical response <laughs> and Keith Giffen approaching with a follow up. But the Annihilation prologue <laughs> is where everything really gets going. It's basically a Nova centric story. The first one in I believe quite some time. Do you know when the last yeah. Nova series was? Uh, yeah, the last Nova series was a 13-volume issue from the late 90s. He actually, volumes 2 and 3 both launched coincident with the 75-issue uh, New Warrior series from the 90s when they put him on the team. Right. And then he kind of faded into obscurity. This was pitched, and the sales on Drax weren't stellar, but Joe Casada, as editor-in-chief, he's a huge street-level character fan. He is the first to admit he's got no interest in the cosmic stories. And he basically approved Annihilation because he realized, you know what, we've got this void to fill. Because even though it's not to my tastes, we've got readers who want to read these cosmic stories. Andy Schmidt and Tom Brevoort love cosmic, and they're both telling me that, no, Keith Gavin's pitch is a good one, run with it. Mm -hmm. So he openly admits he let those those guys talk him into accepting Keith Gavin's pitch and doing Annihilation. The actual publication model, to me, always struck me as like the Countdown to Infinite Crisis model that DC used, where they had that massive prologue issue, which spun off to multiple miniseries, which then converged into the main series. And this was, what, a year after Infinite Crisis. So, uh, and the way Infinite Crisis had sold and had been received, I think it's very likely they were looking at that and going, maybe this is a good way of doing that. And the other thing to remember when we talk about this, is this came out about the same time as Civil War. And I, I think that's really notable in terms of influence, but also in terms of just how rereadable they are mm-hmm. nowadays. Uh, but we, we can get to that later on, uh, I think. Yeah, it's also lucky for Nova that this was approved at that time because Keith Geffen's claim on the character for Annihilation was the only reason he wasn't there in that opening scene in Civil War Number 1 that we're going to be talking about in 14 weeks' time. Right, yeah. So if he had been available, it would probably have been Nova blowing everything up with his... Uh, with the Nova Force, and it, that probably might have worked better because Nova was supposed to be a sort of experienced hero at this point. Uh, he's there's the Nova Corps because I mean, no, let, let's be honest, Nova is Green Lantern but with a different uniform up until oh, about yeah. page 10 of the prologue issue when uh, the Annihilation Wave destroys Xandar and every other Nova Corpsman, uh, Corpsman, Corpsman, Corpsman. I don't know, it's not, not a word we use in English, but they all die, <laughs> yeah. But even then, he's just Instead of being the the Hal Jordan Green Lantern, he becomes the Cal Rayner Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. Yes, he he's got the he's the last one of his not not his race, but his kind. All the power yeah. that was supposed to be split amongst these thousands is concentrated into him. Yeah, so I mean the the prologue is a good issue. I really wish it hadn't been drawn by Scott Collins. I think Scott Collins works very well on some concepts. I just don't think his artwork suits this story. It certainly doesn't on the uh, character mm-hmm. stuff. When you look at some of the pages of the Annihilation Wave ships coming in, they look pretty decent, but I just feel like his uh, the way he draws his characters is uh, too 
sketchy, if that makes sense. There isn't enough detail, there isn't enough emotion yeah. conveyed to that to really sell the horror of what Richard Ryder is going through. Yeah, I would agree that he wasn't a good fit for this. Also, because I find, you know, Scott Collins is great for some things. He's nice on The Flash. I could see him working on, you know, some Fantastic Four runs. He's got a bit of a cartoony style that makes it one step away from reality. Yeah. It never quite feels grounded. And that's not a good fit for this story. Because even though it's all going on in space, this is probably Marvel Comics' most realistic look at war since perhaps the NAM. Yeah, and I just, I don't... Scott Collins is someone I run very hot and cold on. Uh, he did a series called Beyond, which was a Dwayne McDuffie series, uh, yeah. which was nominally a Secret Wars sequel, but um, everyone seems to have forgotten about it. I just don't think he worked too well on that <laughs> either. But when he comes, for instance, I wasn't around to read his Flash stuff. I came into comics after that. But when he returned to the Flash for the Final Crisis issues, the three-part that he did with Jeff Johns, Rogue's Revenge, that was a great series because you got, he knows his character so well, you just got that in every pen, uh, every pen stroke. Yeah. Because there's, there's some projects where, you know, if you're to say who should draw this, I'd put his name at the top of the list, but Annihilation's just not one of them. So I'm in complete agreement with you there. Anyway, those four character-centric miniseries were essentially resetting the status quos as the Drax one had for Drax to line these characters up for the Annihilation event. Yeah, and some of them work better than others. I mean, I've got the books in front of me, so I've already flicked to the Nova miniseries, which I think is probably the strongest of them uh, for a number Agreed. of reasons. One is it really positions Nova going into the Annihilation series, but also it's that link from the prologue, whereas the prologue only really features Drax in a couple of pages. Uh, there's a page of the Silver Surfer and a couple of pages of Ronan um, setting up his miniseries, but Nova is the focus and he's your your audience identification character throughout. Uh, you get that feeling that he's... Of course, the other thing is he's the only guy at that Ground Zero thing. Everyone else is on the outskirts of it and the war comes to them. He's the one stuck in the middle of it. <laughs> and then, of course, Drax and Kami show up. And uh, there are so many things about the way they interact in this four-issue series that I just love. The, the way that Drax, completely deadpan, denies being the Destroyer over and over again. There's a great bit where Drax basically is in the background conversing with the world mind. And all the time Drax is denying that he's the Destroyer because Drax the Destroyer is wanted by the Nova Corps. Uh, he's a criminal, whereas what's technically happened is that Drax is now a new person because of the events of the Drax the Destroyer miniseries. He's gone from this big, hulking, very simple character to a sort of a smaller, leaner version. It's where the tattoos come in that were then adapted for the movie. And he's more intelligent. And he's making a deal with Nova. And he goes, I've destroyed a lot. That takes focus and self-control. So yes, I can teach you. But you're not per se a destroyer. Perish the thought. And there's just, there's such a dryness in it. And the fact that he will look anyone in the eye and go, my name is Drax. I destroy things. But I'm not Drax the Destroyer. With pure, that I just love. And, and that's, I, I think, a very, a very Keith Giffen thing to do. Mm -hmm. Which is impressive, because it's an Abnett and Lanning issue. No, it's very Abnett and Lanning. It would make sense that it's Abnett and Lanning, because uh, they're the ones that then took Nova into his solo series uh, straight out of Annihilation. Yeah, they, as I said, it's, Keith Giffen may have kicked this off, but he was brought over by DC to be a major part of their 52 weekly series, their first year-long weekly series. And Abnett and Lamming stepped up to the plate. He was the layout artist for every issue. So he'd provide layouts for the artist to, uh, the then issue artist to take and then uh, develop. And great work from him on that. Um, yeah, so I think Nova is a, it's just great fun to read. It brings back Quasar. Again, another Briefly. 90s. 
It's another 90s cosmic character who I had no knowledge of before I read this, and I really liked his appearances. Up until the point, uh, Annihilus basically kills him. Yeah, this is not a, a good miniseries for Wendell Elvis Vaughn. No, he gets um, ripped apart by Annihilus's cosmic energy as um, Annihilus then takes the... Uh, are they quantum bands? Is that what they're called? Yes. Takes the quantum bands, which then takes this powerful character and makes him even more powerful for the majority of the series. Yeah. And that may have been because a lot of people have found Quasar really hard to write. Because part of his mission statement is, when he was created... I'm blanking on the, the creator. I want to say Marv Wolfman, or I could be mistaken about that. I believe that. you're right on that. But the idea is, you know, we've all seen these sci-fi movies where everyone's in serious trouble and dies because somebody does something really, really stupid. And that's not Quasar. He will do everything absolutely by the protocol, by the book. You know, if it comes up to something he doesn't recognize, step one is quarantine. Step two is analyze and go through this. So as long as he was writing it, he knew how to make that work. But a lot of other writers struggled with it mm -hmm. and found him difficult to write. So he may have been killed off specifically to avoid that issue and come up with, you know, a legacy character that could continue that would be easier to write, which is part of the side effect of Annihilation Conquest. But uh, I'm also right in saying uh, most of his solo run was written by Mark Gruenwald, uh, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. I can see how after Mark's unfortunate passing, as sales dropped as they did in the 90s and as Marvel dropped anything that potentially was going to make them a loss they approached the bankruptcy, that it was very easy to say, actually, we're going to let this character lie rather than attempt to revive him, diminish the legacy, that kind of thing. Yeah. Quasar is one I want to track down more of his appearances. Because every time he's guest starred in something else I'm reading, I've really enjoyed it. I should really read more of his solo stuff. All right, that's book one. Yeah. Where's the green one? There we are. <laughs> these, these trades have not weathered well. Um, I was reading the second one, and unfortunately I managed to push it in a bookshelf years ago and bend some of the pages. So as I was sort of squeezing them between my thumb, trying to unbend them. So uh, next up was the Silver Surfer miniseries, which was the Keith yes. Giffen one, which I totally yeah. knew 10 minutes ago. Totally knew. Well, it's, it basically boils down to of these four character miniseries, not to spoil things too much. There's the good ones, and then there's the not good ones. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the major thing that happens in this one is that Silver Surfer becomes a Herald of Galactus again. And that, yes. that still feels... Wrong in a good way. Reading it now, knowing that he's no longer a Herald of Galactus, that he's got this funky series with Slot and Ored, seeing him take up that position again to fight the Annihilation Wave is still a kind of spine-chilling, no, this is not right moment. Yeah, that's just, you know, it's recognising Norrin Rad saying, this is the sacrifice I'm going to have to make to save many, many, many more lives. Mm. Right? He's just going, without being backed by Galactus, he will not have the power to stand before this wave and survive. That works really well. The artwork in this, I don't really know Renato Arlen, but it's very clear, looking through here, that Renato is doing basically Alex Maleev-style artwork throughout. I'm not sure how well it works with <laughs> this big cosmic thing. I think the artwork's good in itself. I'm just not sure if it's properly matched to the subject matter. <laughs> yeah, Marvel didn't have a great pool of cosmic artists to draw from because, as we said, Joe Quesada was doing a lot of street-level stories, that's his inclination. So they had a lot of people already on staff who were a good fit for that. So for some of these artists, this is their first major shot at working for Marvel. And plus the other thing is you're not going to have... They're not putting their big names on this. This isn't the project that's going to attract that. There's Civil War coming and that's what's hoovering up all the big names, getting people onto those books. Uh, this wasn't expected mm -hmm. to be a huge, massive sales success. No, and it's... Of the two events that were going on simultaneously, 
I don't think it's spoiling much to say Civil War was the better financial success, but Annihilation, I think, was the better critical success. Mm-hmm. So the, the Silver Surf... Uh, no, no, we've done that. The Super Scroll miniseries. It's all this alliterative of S's. Yeah, yeah. So should we call it the Clerk miniseries then? Nope. The Super Scroll miniseries. Okay. But yeah, this one, it's another... It's almost a twist on Drax where he gets the kid's sidekick, only it goes horribly wrong. I adore this series so much. I think it's one of the most enjoyable four-issue series I've ever read. I really like what it does. I like the way it positions the Super Scroll. He's a, a complete bastard, but you like him. Uh, and, and I think getting people to like the Super Scroll is a very difficult thing to do because, you know, the guy in his early appearance in Fantastic Four doesn't have much of a, a character at all. He's indistinguishable from a character perspective to many of the other villains at the time. But there's such a strong <laughs> sense of who he is in this, uh, both as a character and then his position within the Skrull Empire, the fact that he's the Super Scroll, but he's despised by most of the other Scrolls because he's constantly beaten by the Fantastic Four, is a great way of setting him up and his ruthlessness to do anything that he can to save the planet that his son's on. And then when you mm-hmm. shift to the negative zone and you add in sort of the rest of his brigade, the um, Praxagora and Preak make great additions to the team. It shouldn't be, but there's something touching about the way that Praxagora slowly falls for Super Scroll. Mm-hmm. I think one thing to note about the end of this series is that Super Scroll is dead. The last page is the Super Scroll. It, 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 sorry, it's not the coffin, is it? It's Praxagora years after the Annihilation Day telling uh, the Scrolls that Kalert died in the negative zone. And yeah, that, that's an unusual place to leave a character that's supposed to be starring in the big event just around the corner. Yeah, it is. But given his relationship with the, the Skrull Empire, I kind of got the impression that she was just trying to cover it so he could go underground. It's so hard to say because it says Annihilation Day plus 7,300. Where's my calculator? How many How many years is that? About 20 years. About 20, yeah. So, I mean, that that's just related stories that would clearly never being set up at this point. Yeah, it, it really should have been uh, 7,305 if you're going to include leap years. Mm. But otherwise, it's exactly 20 years. And then, as you said, the Ronan miniseries. Should we say it exists and move on? No, we need to look at what it is and why it doesn't work, because it's a very strange series. You've got this story <laughs> of Ronan trying to find Tana Nile, who you might remember from early 70s Thor comics, gave evidence at Ronan's trial where he's basically exiled from the Kree. So Ronan's on this mission of vengeance to try and find her and clear his name. At the same time, you've got the Annihilation Wave kicking in, which would it, it seems like that's a good way of setting this character up within that. He's on his own mission, but there's also these millions and millions of insects about to tear everything apart. Except you've also got Gamora, who's pulled together lots and lots of badass women for reasons that don't ever get explained very well. And then on top of that, you've got Glorian. Ugh, the fact that I'm saying that. You've got Glorian deciding to try and create paradise on this world. At the same time, he's going to do that by getting Ronan and Gamora to beat each other up. It's a very strange mishmash of lots and lots of different plots that just never coalesce into a clear, coherent story. And it's really unfortunate that that happens. Yeah, It feels almost like it was pitched as a six-issue miniseries, and then the writer found out, no, we're not going to give you six, you've only got four. And he just kind of stuck things next to each other rather than restructuring it so they'd actually bridge and smoothly transition from one to the other. And you know what's really disappointing about this? It's Simon Furman. Simon Furman is an excellent comics writer. He is the guy that basically made Transformers a viable comics property. 
he took the stories mm-hmm. and, and developed them way beyond what you would see on television. He took every single development that was made there, including the movies, and created these massive narratives. Um, if, you, uh, if you're a Transformers comics fan, you'll know that there was the Marvel US series in the 1980s. And that was okay. It's not a particularly mm-hmm. great comic. It's a licensed comic, and that's about it. But because of the way that the US comics were reprinted in the UK, a monthly comic being reprinted in a weekly comic in the UK, and what would happen was each each US comic would be split into two to make uh, sections of this mm-hmm. weekly comic in the UK. We'll do the maths. That's four issues for every one issue. You're too short. Um, so he had mm-hmm. to create his own stories to work along that as well. And the stories in the British comic would just develop so far beyond what was being done in the US comic that when uh, Bob Budiansky left after his years on the US comic, Marvel just went, yeah, this guy doing all this amazing Transformers work, he can have the US comic. And he worked on that until Marvel lost the license or, or didn't want to pay for it, whichever way that yeah. went. But he is a really good writer. Just this is not a good example of his writing. It's a very strange yeah. story. And, and any story that goes, hey, I know what, we'll use Glorian. Just you, you're, you're never going to work, ever. We, we recently covered Glorian's sort of origin on the Fantasticast even though he never actually became Glorian. And it's just it was just a mess. And the character is a mess. And, and bear in mind that Glorian's origin, he's this 13-year-old kid whose dad is an utter dick. They accidentally flew into a nuclear test and he was going to die from radiation poisoning. And then the Shaper of Worlds, remember the giant scroll thing with the <laughs> box with caterpillar tracks for legs, took him away and was going to cure him, except he also gave him some of his power. And then he became a villain for some reason. And you just go, what happened to this? Why? Uh, oh, And yeah, Ronan is an absolute mess of a yeah. story uh, it does feature nebula who you, uh, you remember as karen gillen <laughs> from her three minutes of screen time in guardians of the galaxy but it feels like oh anyone who isn't adam warlock or pick the troll who hasn't appeared anywhere else in the series gets thrown in here yeah that's one thing that i will give credit for in terms of this and actually this entire annihilation event when I was listing the credits, I forgot to mention the cover artist is Gabriel Delato. Mm-hmm, you did. Yeah, his painted covers on everything are phenomenal. Yes. I would say his covers are the best part of the Ronin miniseries. And it set a star that was then continued into Guardians of the Galaxy with, was it Flint Henry or Henry Flint? Whoever did the digital artwork for those covers basically kept that kind of same feeling with the color palette, even though it was um, something else entirely. He's a guy that uh, does a lot of 2000 AD work as well. You often see him on, on ABC Warriors, but I can't think of his actual name, which is a shame. And then we hit up uh, Volume 3, which is the main event, the actual Annihilation miniseries. Yeah, and this is where it all comes together. Richard Ryder Nova, the sole surviving Nova, has somehow been put in charge of the army facing against the whole Annihilation wave, largely because of his power and the fact that he was there and knew that things needed to be pulled together. So you need the rat. It very cannily, there's a time jump, isn't there, between what happens in the Nova series and then where we pick up at the start of number one of about four months. That's something that has to be said. Mm-hmm. Uh, this series takes time. This isn't, or you take a look at everything and everything's mm-hmm. done in a week or so. From the moment the Annihilation Wave take over to the end of it is the best part of a year. 220 mm-hmm. days, I think, which is, what, eight months, nine months? Ballpark, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of time. Yeah. So it is very much not the overnight thing. It's not like some of these six-issue story arcs we see today where if you were to actually watch them happen in real time, they'd be about two hours. Yes, and if, not, the, not the title ever lasts for, say, five years. You take a look at it, well, there was four months worth of story, but you've had three Christmases as well. Yeah, like the Claremont X-Men that was bi-monthly and 
the editor-in-chief at the time said, no, 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 we put Christmas in every December published issue. Yeah. <laughs> so the X-Men celebrate Christmas every four days. Hey, why not? Saves taking all the decorations down. Yeah, but no, this is where it really comes together. Thanos becomes a player in this. Yes, he'd been loitering around. Was it the... It must have been the Silver Surfer miniseries where he basically agreed to join up with Annihilus because Annihilus has interests in the cosmic power that uh, Galactus funnels and uh, manipulates through his heralds. Yeah, so he came to Thanos because Thanos has a history of developing devices to funnel that power and Thanos agreed because odds are his plan is to steal that power for himself. Well, didn't Th actually, I'll correct you on that. Thanos went to Annihilus uh, and I didn't really know that Thanos was around, but Thanos made himself known and then manipulated things so that he could do this. Basically, as he <laughs> points out later on in this series, basically to find out what would happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's just the kind of guy Thanos is, and it works quite well. It's actually interesting because we it comes to a point as things are building, and they realize that Annihilus is not actually looking to conquer, he's looking to destroy. Yeah, he uh, when Warren Ellis did the ultimate version of Annihilus, he called him Nihil. Uh, as taking the word from nihilism and i guess it's the ultimate form of nihilism which is destroy everything and leave only me yeah that's essentially the plan here and when thanos comes up with that he's actually in a position where he could very well save the universe hmm. only drax fulfills his mission of being created to destroy thanos so that i thought was actually quite the nice touch where you know drax's tunnel vision about thanos actually puts the universe in greater jeopardy yeah, so I, I guess you could split these six issues into two halves. The first half is this uh, lengthy final stand of this grand alliance on uh, this one planet where everyone's together. And then Annihilus comes in and it all goes to <coughs> for the heroes. They lose completely yeah. and utterly. And then they split up into their separate things. So the Super Scroll revives because he wasn't actually dead and uh, works with Ronan on one thing. Gamora goes off to do something else, and you've got Nova and Quasar, and not Quasar, sorry, you've got Nova and Star-Lord doing another thing, uh, and you've uh, also introduced Moondragon and the Captain Marvel who's around at the time, which is Phylavel, Marvel's daughter. Mm -hmm. And that's how the day is won. You don't have this grand army versus army. You have these smaller things going on. But yeah, one of the issues ends with... Um, Thanos going, yes, in a few moments' time, I'll be able to flick this switch that's tuned in only to me, and I'll interrupt Annihilus' cosmic power-feeding plans and save everything. And Drax just goes, I must destroy you, and puts his hand through Thanos' chest and rips out his heart and kills Thanos. Five minutes too soon. Yeah. It's a massive whoa moment. It is. It's one of the most memorable ones. And this is, as you said, at this stage, the heroes are not figuring out the way to win this war. The heroes have decided... We have lost this war. Let's prolong our existence for as long as possible. Yeah, it's a huge moment when that happens, when they realize, no, this is all screwed. The Kree have done some dodgy deal with Annihilus, which means that they're going to um, ally with them. So Ronan executes them all. House Fiero takes them all out. Uh, but there's just loads of big stuff going on in here. This, it's a very dense story. <laughs> and one of the great things about this is how You've only really got Nova and Star-Lord who are, we must save the universe from the Annihilation Wave. Everyone else is in it for their own ends. And it just happens that their needs coincide with the need to save the universe. So Drax is using Nova to get to Thanos. Gamora's using Nova because I, I think she just wants a bit of fun, as it were. Uh, Ronan is using everything to make the Kree great again. 
<laughs> the way they all come together is really good because they've all got their own motivations. I've just been reading the first issue of Guardians of the Galaxy, the, the new volume for uh, the Fantasticast, because we're reviewing that on thefantasticast.com uh, because it's got Ben in it. And I was reading it and going, I've no idea why these people are together, but they all seem to be doing it because, hey, there was a movie a year ago and we should all hang around on a spaceship. And there, there was nothing in the comics to say, well, here's why Drax is still around. Here's why Rocket's here. With Star-Lord gone, there's nothing to say why they're all together. And yeah, such a contrast to this, where it's so well set up that everyone's got their own thing going on. There's some fun little cameos yeah. as well. Um, did you spot the, uh, what's he, uh, the Infant Terrible? Yeah, I think actually the last time he showed up was when we were discussing Next Wave. Yeah, well, that, that may or may not count, depending on if Next Wave counts or not. But yeah, so the, the, the Infant Terrible, who was back way, way back in like Fantastic Four, I want to say 23 or 24, turns up as the delinquent, because that's what happens when you grow up a bit, uh, w- working for Annihilus, but not by choice. And that I th- took me a long time to realise that, because I didn't know Fantastic Four too well when I started reading this. But I love that they just keep tying these little things in, like Terax the Tamer's in there as well, and there's all sorts of great stuff. What do we think of Star-Lord in this? This was interesting. This was actually my first exposure to Star-Lord. So I hadn't read any of the, the originals, and it's He's kind of an interesting right-hand man to Nova, although he hasn't yet grown into the character that you'd know from the movies. No, I found it really interesting because, again, it was um, Star-Lord for me, and all I got was he used to be this big thing, and now he's kind of renounced that. And he he doesn't seem to have any powers in this. He's got a, a cybernetic thing, which is never explained, and I guess disappears at some point because he no longer has it, and he's got a gun, and that's it. And mm-hmm. I found that really interesting, especially now knowing what happens to him. Um, I understand from reading around, he turned up towards the end of Jim Starlin's Thanos run, which came out of the Ultimate End miniseries in about 2003, 2004, which, uh, and he turned up in the issues that introduced the Kiln, which is where everything kicks off with this. It's, it's this big prison on the edge of the universe, uh, which is the first yeah. thing to fall when the Annihilation Wave comes in. Yeah, that's Marvel Universe, the end? Yeah. Yeah, I've read that. I picked it up as it came out and don't remember it well because I remember not caring for much of it. I picked up four issues that came out and never got the other two. But um, yeah, he'd been reintroduced in there um, after, I guess, a long time of being fallow. Okay, so I guess this wasn't my first introduction to him. It was just my first memorable introduction to him. Yeah, I, I found that really interesting because the character is so different, both in terms of how he's portrayed on the page, his character, there's none of the... There is a sort of wit, but it's not that kind of broad, goofy wit that you'd get now. Starlord, he's a character that's been through some stuff and it's showing on him. I don't think he wears the face mask thing at any point either. I might be wrong on that, but I don't recall it. Nor do I. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's different. It is. And a lot of this is moving people into new territory. I mean, I'm a big New Warriors fan. It was Nova's involvement that really pushed me over the edge on this. Because especially since I wasn't happy with the way New Warriors came back after Civil War particularly since they had a miniseries leading into it to say, hey, we're getting ready because they're going to be part of this major Civil War event. And I was going, oh, yeah, yay, New Warriors getting their due. And then Civil War happened. But this I really like because you believe on the first page of the Annihilation prologue that yeah, Richard Ryder deserves to be treated like the rookie that his peers are treating him as. Because mm-hmm. as far as Nova responsibilities are concerned, he is a rookie. The readers might know by this point he's a competent superhero. He appeared in the 70s, but... Yeah, he wasn't ready for it. But by the time we get to Annihilation, you get why he's leading the army, but he's also not this brilliant leader. They are losing and losing badly. 
Yeah, his main asset is the uh, the the sheer the amount mind. of power that he's got. Yeah, the world mind. Yeah, it really sets it up, and it it helps in that final battle to really feel desperate because that's what it is. He does. It's eventually Nova that really takes Annihilus on head to head and face to face. Yeah, and you. I mean, the way it all ends is you've basically got Nova, Star-Lord, and Phylavel against Annihilus, and it is a, a proper smackdown fight. But things come to a head when Phyla is able to take the quantum bands from Annihilus, and then becomes the new Quasar, which she would then be throughout Annihilation Conquest and Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, the volume that launched after that. Uh, but Nova, when his uniform's ripped and he's got scars all over him, ends up ramming his arm down Annihilus's throat and then pulling something. Whatever he can get his hands on, yeah. Pulling loads of Annihilus's innards out through his own mouth, killing him in a big double-page splash. And, I mean, that's the only way. It can only end with Annihilus's death. That's the only way you're going to yeah. stop someone like that. Yeah, he is not motivated by anything you can negotiate him out of. That's it. And frankly, the negotiations... One of the things I don't like about the end of this is the way that... Uh, they just cede a whole bunch of territory to Annihilus's forces, what's left of them, rather than just saying, no, no, back over the uh, line into the negative zone, you. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been nice to see them push back a little bit more. But it, it's, I guess it sort of sells up that it's not a clean victory, it's a Pyrrhic victory. Have they really won? Well, they're alive, but they might not actually have won. Yeah, especially since we kind of see the next Annihilus gestating and ready to come. Yes, the, the new version of Alice is ready to come. We've mentioned Civil War a couple of times. There's a really nice moment where they end up above the Earth and Richard Rider's looking down at them all whilst they're taking part in the Civil War crossover, not knowing what's going on above them and just saying something along the lines of if they only knew. And it, it tells really nicely why he can't just go, excuse me, Fantastic Four, Avengers, X-Men, hello, massive wave of enemies about to come in because they're too busy going, hey, let's build a Cyberthor. Yeah. And I like the way it just touches on that, but it, apart from that, it never really involves Earth at all, which is uh, very unlike recent volumes of Guardians of the Galaxy, where it seems like they can't get out of orbit without being dragged back to Earth for some reason, especially Guardians team-up. Uh, just it, really depressing every issue. Oh, look, they're back on Earth again. you Guardians of the actual galaxy. Go out into space. Yeah, and you compare that to, you know, the, the cosmic corner of the Marvel Universe that launches out of this. So this volume of Guardians... Annihilation, as we said, War of Kings. War of Kings touches a little bit on what's going on on Earth just because the Inhumans are in space and Black Bolt was replaced by a Skrull. So following Secret Invasion, there was a little tie-in there. But even then, they don't really go to Earth so much as, well, this is what we've learned. And if you're reading all of Marvel's output, you know, oh, well, that was learned on Earth. Aside from that, this whole corner of the Marvel Universe really stands alone. So if you're interested in reading this, you can read the Marvel Cosmic from this era and only the Marvel Cosmic from this era and everything you need to follow it is right there on the page. Mm. It is a very isolated corner of the universe, which is nice because that means DNA, as they, Dan Abbott and Andy Lanning were collectively known when they worked together. I believe that partnership has fizzled out or yeah, they're not, broken up somehow. Yeah, they're not writing together anymore. Um, Abnett's off doing his own stuff for Marvel and DC and Andy Lanning, I guess, is happy doing his bits of inking and stuff like that. But yeah, they're not writing together, which is a shame. Yeah, it is, because I haven't seen them work together on anything that I've been dissatisfied with, but with the possible exception of Conquest. But the sequel, Annihilation Conquest, I'm not going to blame them for, because as we said, Keith Geffen was pulled away by DC in a great deal 
when it was already a work in progress and the chains mm. were moving and all of a sudden they needed someone to step up and fill this void and keep things coming out on schedule. I mean, just such a briefly in our local congress, it's not bad, but it's a very simple, straight story compared to this. I, I remember it seems to end in a, a, a big anticlimax, which is a real shame. I, I do remember getting to the end of that and going, oh, okay, that doesn't have the impact of this. But there are some nice ideas in that. The, the idea of putting a nihilus with the phalanx, the technically um, is a really good idea. Yeah, using Ultron and that was a nice touch, but it just, yeah, it just, it didn't live up to the bar that this set. Yeah, but I mean, we, we've talked about Annihilation, there's still a couple more issues to go. <laughs> yep, the Heralds of Galactus, because a big part of Annihilus's plan was to actually steal the power of the Heralds of Galactus. Mm-hmm. The entire attack on Xandar was not about the Nova Corps, it was about drawing out Fire Lord, who is a Xandarian, and now a Herald of Galactus. Yes, but not he's not the only person uh, Herald of Galactus to be connected to the Nova Corps. Uh, Gabriel the yeah. Airwalker was originally a member of the Nova Corps as well before he was a robot. Yeah. Uh, obviously, that, that was a retcon because Gabriel was created a long time before the Nova Corps. But we, uh, you end up with these uh, this two-issue miniseries where each issue is split into two. So you've got these four short stories focusing on different Heralds of Galactus. And I think it's fair to say they're not exactly integral. No, you could... If you choose to stop reading those collected editions with Annihilation number six, you're not going to walk away feeling like you're missing anything. And I'll be honest, this is probably the first time since I read these upon purchase that I've uh, actually read these Herald's issues because I just finished Annihilation and move on to something else. They, they weren't as bad as I was expecting when I actually got to them, but they aren't, they aren't great. There's one where Tarax the Tamer decides to take revenge on things by yeah. slicing a planet in half with his axe. Oh, that's it. Yeah. it involves the space parasite. I mean, that's obscure if you're putting the space parasite in something. Yeah. In fact, it, space parasite is so obscure, he doesn't have his own Wikipedia page. Yeah, and with Wikipedia these days, that's saying something. Yeah. The Stardust one, I quite liked because it was dealing with the concept of non-humanoid life forms. And I thought mm-hmm. it did quite well in the sort of 12, 15 pages it's got to it, and doesn't end the way you expect it to. But Stardust, yeah. I don't think has appeared since. At least not in anything I recall. No, uh, I'm going to attempt to check. <laughs> oh, we Stardust Marvel Comics. Do we have a reference? The Stardust originally turned up in Stormbreaker, the saga of Beta Ray Bill. Mm-hmm. But as far as I can see, has not appeared since the end of Annihilation when he was supposed, to, or they, sorry, were supposed to have been the, the ongoing Herald of Galactus. Obviously, it uh, didn't pass probation. Did Galactus appear between this and Age of Ultron? Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, well, he was in a, a Thor run with Matt Fraction when he took over the Mighty Thor, for instance. Okay. Because I remember he thought uh, Galactus was above the town of Broxton. Um, yeah, he was around, but just not okay. with his Herald. All right. Yeah, I didn't read Fraction's Thor, so. Da, 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 da. Oh, God, he's all over the place in Chaos War, uh, Avengers. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Jeff Loeb Hulk. Oh, close this tab down. <laughs> oh, Okay. I did read that. I may have. I may not recall it as a form of psychological defense mechanism. But it was. Uh, it was quite a nice little short story. Then you've got um, who, who is this? Fire Lord. Mm-hmm. And I only read this three nights ago, and I couldn't tell you what was going on here. I'm looking at it now, going, I don't remember this at all. Yeah, Fire Lords didn't stand out. It's generally speaking, the Heralds of Galactus are nice little character vignettes for these characters, but putting the Annihilation stamp on it to me didn't really work. It just, they didn't feel like they were Annihilation. It felt more like 
you know, the initiative following Civil War or Age of Heroes following Siege. Mm. It felt like it was just, here's the new status quo as a consequence of that event, but otherwise there's no direct ties to that event. Well, except for the last one, which is the Silver Surfer story, because we haven't talked about this, but um, in the Silver Surfer series, Galactus is worried because these two ancient beings, Aegis and Tenebrous, have been freed from the kiln, and he's the one that put them there. And at the start of Annihilation, they capture him and deliver him to Annihilus. And we know nothing about them except they're ancient. And what the Silver Surfer series does is explain where they come from, gives them an origin, also explains the little Chaos Mite that was a leftover from the Thanos series by Jim Stalin. It gives an origin for that as well, because there's this little mite, a fairy thing that follows mm-hmm. Thanos around, and um, then ends with the Silver Surfer defeating the two super powerful beings by surfing the edge of the universe. Yeah. The story isn't great, and there's a, a series of pages where it's just dialogueless things blasting each other. It's a four-page sequence of just things blasting each other, which isn't very good at all. But it does answer some questions that probably wouldn't have been touched on mm-hmm. if you hadn't done that. True. Yeah, it's it offers a bit of exposition and background, but none of those I found were as memorable in this. It was the six-issue Annihilation event. This is probably my favorite Marvel Comics event. Yeah, I'm going with that as well. Yeah, I mean, there's just... It's rich. The war feels like a war. You don't have characters who seem to be shoehorned in for the sake of marketing. Everyone who's in here feels like they belong here. And because I'm going to be a little uh, little reductive with this, but because nobody cared about this corner of the universe, everyone was there for a reason. So you don't have, okay, well, so what's Spider-Man going to do in this crossover? What's the Fantastic Four going to do in this crossover? Oh God, we've got a Punisher comic that's not working but is still ongoing how's the Punisher going to get involved there's none of that everyone's in it for a reason so when they do the the four issue miniseries even though the Ronan one doesn't really work there is a reason for it to be there and it contributes to the overall storyline there's no filler there's no sense of well I've just read this She-Hulk issue with a Civil War banner on it but it barely mentions Civil War at all what was the point in branding it like that I mean it's not the Moon Knight tie-in that we were getting with Civil War at the same time where the entire tie-in is Moon Knight telling people, I don't want to get involved, and Captain America showing up to say, don't get involved, and walking away. Yay. Yeah, like, this, it really does feel like everyone in this belongs here. Nobody even acts out of character to promote the story, which is something we'll return to in 14 weeks' time. Mm-hmm. This is just a really fun read. There isn't much that I enjoy picking up and rereading now from my bookshelves, apart from anything. The, the current state of Marvel Comics between what they're choosing to publish, what they're not choosing to publish, their questionable choices in taking very obviously LGBT characters and going, no, 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 refusing to define them, uh, and their lack of diversity in creators. It all makes it very easy for me to go, no, I'm not going to buy Marvel Comics at the moment. But it also means that I don't get as much pleasure from rereading the stuff I have enjoyed in the past. It doesn't apply to this. I blasted through these three trades in a, a number of nights and had a really good time with them going, yeah, this was a good time in comics. And once again, that pang of regret that I hadn't been on board with it, if not from the Drax series, mm-hmm. at least from the Conquest Prologue series and getting involved there, because that meant that I never read Nova when it came out. I didn't read Annihilation Conquest. I didn't read Guardians of the Galaxy when it came out. I came onto all of these things late and have sorely regretted it ever mm-hmm. since because they are really good comics. They're dense, rich comics, and they have Cosmo in it. If you were wondering where that mm-hmm. dog came from in Guardians of the Galaxy with the little cosmonaut space helmet that's cosmo (laughs) cosmo is the best the absolute best and you need to read guardians of the galaxy to get that well you said it at the start 
This is the launch of the Cosmic Universe as we know it today. Prior to this, Marvel Cosmic was effectively the domain of Jim Starlin. So it was all focused around either Adam Warlock, Captain Marvel, or Thanos in various combinations. And you would have outliers mm-hmm. like the Nova Corps, or you'd have um, Quasar, but those were the key things. When people think of the cosmic stuff from the 90s, what do they think of? It's the Infinity Gauntlet, Adam Warlock and the Infinity Watch, things like that. Yeah, Infinity something. Crusade, War... <laughs> that had petered out, and you then had the Marvel Universe, the end series, which launched the Thanos series, where some of the concepts... Think of that as a bridge between old cosmic and new. But this is what kicks it off. This is what landed DNA, mm-hmm. the Nova series, uh, which then landed them Annihilation Conquest. And that's when you see the Guardians of the Galaxy almost but not quite come together. But that's where Groot is introduced. And um, really big surprise reading that. Groot doesn't go, mm-hmm. I am Groot. He talks like a, no- like a normal tree. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe I said that. But he has normal English dialogue. The I am Groot thing doesn't come until at the end of the series where he's blown up. And in Guardians of the Galaxy, he spends the first few issues growing back. Which I, yeah, and I they found amazing. Say he's going to outgrow it, and then he never does. He never does because there was three words, but done with real subtlety in terms of how people interacted with it. Again, in the Bendis Guardians of the Galaxy, it's a punchline to a joke that's not very funny. Yeah, but I mean that was just done so well because Dan Abner and Andy Landing are some of the best comics writers to never be the biggest things in the business. They are genuinely great mm-hmm. at what they do, and you take a look at anything they've written. And even if it's off-the-wall series like Resurrection Man, even the new 52 Resurrection Man is a great comic that nobody bought. But things like Legion Mm -hmm. Lost, uh, the work they did on the DC 1 million crossover, where they did probably more heavy lifting than Grant Morrison did. Loads of stuff for both companies. They are great, great writers, and it's a shame they don't get more for it. It's a shame their Guides of the Galaxy weren't huge sellers at the time. And it's a shame it petered out as it did. As it well. did, although I will give them credit. Because this was pretty much their own domain, if you follow all this cosmic stuff, it's one giant story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. And it ends with Thanos Imperative. Well, they really do write an end to these stories. Except they then keep going afterwards with the Annihilator series, which didn't really work because it was an anthology book. It wasn't on monthly schedule. And yeah, no, it, it yeah. sort of, it limped on a little bit afterwards, but nobody was really feeling it at that point. Yeah, if you stop reading with Thanos Imperative, you'll get a satisfying ending. I think to have taken the concept like the Guardians of the Galaxy, which, if you don't know your Marvel history, the Guardians of the Galaxy were created in, ooh, something like 1969 or 1970. They were effectively the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, In terms of they were superheroes from the far future and didn't really have anything to do with the present-day Marvel Universe. They appeared in one comic and then disappeared for about five years, four or five years, then came back for a little bit, then disappeared and then came back a bit in the Korvac saga, and then disappeared, and then they had a run by Jim Valentino in the 90s. I have never once enjoyed reading any of those characters in those comics, and I've read bits and bobs here and there, and I just go, I'm bored with this. So to have taken that concept and made it valid and relevant, uh, and then to have taken all these discarded characters and made them relevant as well, and brought them all (laughs) together, it's a fantastic piece of work, and Marvel owe them hugely for doing that. Yeah, we would not have had the movie that we had without Abnett and Lanning. Absolutely not. But we would not have had Abnett and Lanning without this series. Yeah. So I think we've actually covered the impact this had on this and the movie industry, the plot synopsis, the significance, how we both got involved with it. We were both, you know, grabbing the trades after the fact. So I think from here, the next step is the portion of the podcast I've so blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that everybody should be listening to. Are there any messages, morals, and meanings in this story? Giant bugs are bad. 
Yeah, that and the general war is hell. I do get that feel. Yeah, I I I think that's something you can layer onto it. I don't think that at any point the story goes out of its way to say, "Oh my god, war's so bad." Um, it's yeah. it's just there. It's a reality of it. Yeah, I think it's just quality writing where they're not they're not trying to tell you war is hell. They're just trying to say, "Okay, these guys are at war. What's it going to feel like?" And then just writing to it. War's so bad it'll make Gamora sleep with Nova. That's how bad war is. Oh, just quickly yeah. on Gamora, because we haven't really talked about it, but my God, does she go through a massive personality change between the end of the Ronan miniseries and the Annihilation series? Almost as if they, uh, the editors were going, no, this isn't working at all. Nope. No, this is not working. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple shifts like that. But again, Gamora from here is what leads into the Gamora that shows up in the movies. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think there's any deeper meanings than that it's not a message book it's just let's just go out there and tell the good story Mm -hmm. and then the messages we get are probably more subliminal as just characters represent the ethics morals and values that abnett and lanning hold yeah oh just one more thing thrown before we move off annihilation completely worth (laughs) noticing the the way annihilus set up in this is still valid now The, the series ends with this new baby annihilus but there's the threat of the annihilation wave constantly it's what Johnny Storm dies for in Fantastic Four 580, whatever it was. Um, he dies mm-hmm. to prevent the second Annihilation Wave from breaking through into our universe through the Negative Zone portal. In the FF series by Jonathan Hickman, a teenage Annihilus who is uh, basically controlled by Johnny ends up on the loo. Johnny and Peter Parker share an apartment and the last page is a teen Annihilus on the crapper. And it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful shot, let's just say. I never thought I'd ever enjoy that but it was and um annihilus continues with that the annihilation wave turned up in secret wars and is a a concern in the current guardians of the galaxy volume so it's not a revert afterwards this was a very successful reinterpretation of the character oh yeah it it turns him from you know the joke that messed around with franklin's birth to oh not quite a joke there but he definitely wasn't a joke he was great he had a giant boot on a robotic arm that he was going to kick the Fantastic Four with. That's not a joke. He had a train in space. Yeah, if you've not read Fantastic Four Annual Number 6, you have to go read it. It's one of the... It's Jack Kirby's brain firing off in a thousand different directions, Stanley trying to keep up. And if you listen to episode 93 of the Fantasticars, you can listen to Andy, myself, and special guest Al Kennedy attempt to keep up with both of them. Yeah, and you should do that, because the Fantastic Cast is great. And, and that is one of our... It's one of my favourite episodes, and I think it's one of our very best as well. Anyway, yes. All right. So I think the next step here is why we think it landed at this point in the tournament rankings. It should be higher. It would be higher if more people had read it. Yeah, I think you're actually quite good at picking out those stories. That's you started with Next Wave, then we have this one, and that's that's what it is. I personally think I consider this my favorite Marvel Comics event out of anything they've published. Yeah, it's not my favorite comics event full stop because there's Infinite Crisis, but this is definitely the best thing I've read from Marvel. I'm very jaded on a lot of their events, especially once we're around this time. House of M, Civil War, Secret Invasion. Do not do it for me at all. Whereas this, even what, 10 years later, is a great reread. Fun, enjoyable, a dense plot that you don't feel like, oh, I'm reading this again. There's only two twists in this, uh, in the seven issues. So it really does pop. It does. We've got three events, or three Marvel Comics events that ranked higher than it on the tournament. And I would put it higher than all three. And that's the original Secret Wars, the Infinity Gauntlet, and Civil War. Yeah, I've not read the original Secret Wars. I quite like the Infinity Gauntlet, although weirdly I actually prefer Infinity War. 
But Civil War, yeah, I'm sorry, if you voted for that over this, you're an idiot. It's as simple as that. This is a great series. And the only reason I would accept you voting for Civil War and not voting for this is that you haven't read this. And what you should be doing is heading straight over to Comixology and buying this. Yeah. Or your local shop if they've got the trades or the hardcovers in stock to support yeah, them. There, there is an omnibus, but I would imagine the trade paperbacks and the hardcovers after sort of six, seven years are going to be difficult to come by. Yeah. But the main thing is the people who created this deserve the credit for it. So please obtain it in a manner that puts pennies in their pocket. Mm -hmm. So I think that's about all we have to say about this, unless you have other closing thoughts, aside from the fact that, like I said, we look at why it's on the tournament just because it is very well done. Yeah. And the three aspects we look at in terms of entertainment value, it's here in spades. The second point we look at is significance to continuity. This launched the Marvel Cosmic line that lasted for years and turned into the Guardians of the Galaxy movie mm -hmm. that was so well received. And then the third is the messages and morals, and that's not really why this is there. Yeah. Anything you see, as we said, you're kind of putting into it as a reader almost on your own. So from there, Stephen, why don't you tell people all the podcasts where they could find you right now? Indeed, this is the last chance I have to do this. Because uh, unless there's something you, I don't know about, uh, as soon as we're done with this, then I'm, I'm leaving the countdown or count up forever. So yeah, uh, I can be found every week as part of the Fantasticast. Now available at our new Patreon-supported website, www.thefantasticast.com. My co-host Andrew Leyland and myself read through the Fantastic Four from the very beginning. We are in late 1973, about to break into 1974. At the time of listening, if you're listening to this at the time of release, sorry, uh, we're about two or three weeks away from the start of Marvel 2 in 1. In terms of things we covered recently that are relevant to this, we've just done an Annihilus storyline, which was Fantastic Four's 140 and 41. We've done The Origin of Glorian, which was uh, 136 and 137. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't look at those so much. But we're, we're really deep into our 1970s Marvel. Um, and it's well worth uh, diving in and saying hi. And if you do like us, you can always head over to patreon.com slash fantasticast and support us on there for lots of extra content, including our uh, monthly episode commentaries on the 1967 Fantastic Four cartoon. I know I pitched it on Patreon. Anyway, yeah, so you can find me on there, and you can find me on Twitter. I am at QuizLacey, Q-U-I-Z-L-A-C-E-Y. Uh, do drop us a follow. Okay, now from there, for those of you who are reading along at home, next week we are looking at Incredible Hulk issue number one. Which Incredible Hulk issue number one? Uh, this is the original from the 1960s. Anyway, so Incredible Hulk number one from 1962 was reprinted in Marvel Tales Annual number one, Marvel Collector's Item Classics 14, 15, and 16, Incredible Hulk Annual number two, Marvel Masterworks Volume 8, Incredible Hulk Volume 1, Marvel Milestone Edition, Incredible Hulk number one, Origins of Marvel Comics, Incredible Hulk Beauty and the Behemoth, Essential Hulk Volume 1, 100 Greatest Marvels of All Time, Issue 4, Incredible Hulk Omnibus Hardcover, Marvel Digital Unlimited, Comixology, and the GitCorp DVD-ROM. All right, so from there, please feel free to rate this and any other shows you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you use. It really does help the shows get noticed. Share the links with your friends. Feel free to join our Facebook forum and discuss the contents that we have. And finally, thank you for listening.